Open the precious Word of God to the second chapter of John again. John 2. I know that what we covered in the first service is hard for those who haven't heard it before to hear it because we're conditioned. Conditioning is a terrible thing. It's just another word for brainwashing. We're conditioned to think a certain way and because of habit to tradition. Uh, We use it ourselves. It's hard for us to have it questioned or attacked by the Word of God. And that is true of marriage. Most of us in here that are older than 40 or 30 were married in a church with some sort of a pastor officiating. And we heard, here comes the bride. And we did everything that was mentioned earlier and then some. And we're conditioned to think that that's the only way it should be done or has been done or we think that that's the best way to get a couple started is to give them a good church wedding. And it's not found in the Bible and it's hard for us to accept that because we've been conditioned to think otherwise. And I could go on and on with that conditioning, but I don't, I'll just want to, I want to be brief. Um, we're conditioned about Mary. I remember Brother Jeff Years ago, 30 years ago, when I first time I ever preached on Mariolatry, and I think he remembers, when I described how conditioned we are to think of that little serene woman with the plastic face, the folded hands, the halo. How long was the hair under her arms? How bad was her B.O.? Did she have the custom of women once a a month for a week? You say I'm being sacrilegious? You're a half Catholic. (laughs) I'm not being sacrilegious. I'm just reminding you that she was an ordinary woman. And yet those pictures that we have burned, burned over and over into our heads of this serene woman just with her hands in a position of prayer, I guess, looking down at a glowing baby in a little tiny manger that couldn't feed anything but one small calf. We're conditioned. She was a hard-working woman. We know of eight children she had, or so, seven or eight, because their names are given, and we're used the plurality of sisters for her children in Matthew chapter 13. Look at Matthew chapter 1. I know I asked you to turn to John 2 because we're going to get there. But uh, Matthew chapter 1, I want to show you the verse about the perpetual virginity of Jesus and of Mary, as the Catholics say, but it's refuted by this verse. And I want to remind you that there are these verses like this have been corrupted because there's a motive to corrupt them. And it says about Joseph that he knew her not, Matthew one twenty five. he knew her not, so that her firstborn son could be a virgin birth. He knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Modern versions following Catholic versions, not all modern versions, and knew her not till she brought forth a son. But it says her firstborn son. Then we go to Matthew 13 and we have four of those sons named. Then we go later in the Bible and find out that James, the Lord's brother, becomes the principal apostle of the Jerusalem church. They'll say, these were stepbrothers through Joseph. These were cousins. They'll do all this junk. I just want to share. The King James Bible will defend you. Do you remember what the translators put in their introduction to King James in a King James Bible? We thank thee, O King, that thou by this project hath dealt a death blow to that man of sin, the son of perdition, who sits in Rome. They knew who the Antichrist was and who the man of sin was. I'd like you to look at Psalm 69 just for a moment. Psalm 69, so that we can read about these cousins of Jesus. I speak as a fool. When it says he had brethren and they knew their names and he had sisters, 
and they knew of them in Nazareth, they were real brothers and sisters. Because Joseph was waiting for Jesus to be born so that he could know his wife like every man wants to know his wife. And can't wait till she recovers from having a child. Psalm 69 and verse 9 is quoted in John 2 later in verse 17 about Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple. Psalm 69 verse 9, I'm wanting to give you a context for you to see that this is a messianic psalm. Psalm 69 verse 9, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The disciples remembered this statement and applied it by the Holy Spirit's power to these fishermen. That that was fulfilled when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. And the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. And I hope that that's an exciting proposition for you. Does every man in here want that verse to be fulfilled in your life? The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches by which men have reproached thee are now fallen upon me because I'm representing you on earth. Wonderful! Wonderful possibilities. But I want verse 8. About the Lord Jesus Christ, I am become a stranger unto my brethren. So far, it still sounds like cousins. Because it uses the vague word brethren in their opinion, the Catholic opinion. Until Jesus' resurrection, his brothers were not converted. His brothers did not believe on him. We're going to encounter that in John chapter 7. I am become a stranger unto my brethren. They want to make those stepbrothers. They want to make them cousins. And an alien unto my mother's children. Ah, sorry. It's real brothers and sisters. My mother's children. We know a Protestant. And we're not Protestants. Baptists are not Protestants. We never protested against Rome because we were never part of Rome. A Protestant denomination is one that has protested against their mother, but they all count her still as their mother. They have Rome has seven sacraments. The Protestant churches have two sacraments for the most part. If you were to ask the average Baptist, how many ordinances do Baptists have? What do they all say? Every creed. Two. Why? Because they're still thinking in Rome's delineation of seven sacraments, and they're thinking like Protestants. Everything that God has ordained for a New Testament church to do is an ordinance. Not just baptism in the Lord's Supper. Amen. So, whenever I hear someone talk about the two, bap- the two ordinances of the Baptist church, why? Where is it called that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. It still has vestiges of Rome's seven sacraments and Protestants' two sacraments still infecting Baptists. Right. About the assumption of Jesus. The Western Catholics, the Latin Church, the Roman Church, aren't sure if she really died and they have been afraid to pronounce death on her before her assumption. When she reached the end of her earthly ministry, she was assumed up into heaven and they're afraid to pronounce whether she died or not. Now the Eastern Catholic Church, the Greek Catholic Church, says she indeed died and was in the grave three days and three nights and then was resurrected and assumed up into heaven. Just to clarify that, if you were to go look that up, you would see a distinction between the Western Roman Latin Church and the Eastern Greek Constantinople Church. Verse 2. John 2 and verse 2. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. This verse opens a door for us to chase down another rabbit. And here it is. Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage, a feast, and they went. The fact here, this fact, condemns over-righteous ascetics that deny such feasts for saints. An ascetic is a denomination from way back then that didn't believe in any earthly pleasure. 
that you were to give yourself to chanting, robes, prayers, uh, like monks, like nuns. They're called ascetics with a capital A for the, for the group, for the denomination, for the heresy, and little a for those that act like them. And that means that Christians can't have a good time. They overreact and run into ditches. And we always want the crown of the road. So John 2.2 gives us an opportunity. Jesus and his disciples, the holiest men that have walked this earth, went to a feast where there was a lot of wine consumed and where people were celebrating. Roman Catholic monks, nuns, and priests are not allowed the pleasures of life. They take vows of celibacy so that they can't marry priests and, and nuns. They take vows of poverty. They're monks. You know, the more you can flagellate yourself. Have you ever seen the Mexicans and the Filipinos that want to drag crosses through city streets on Good Friday and flagellate themselves with whips and scourge themselves? Where did that come from? It's Rome. Abaddon and Apollyon are two names, Hebrew and Greek, in the last verse of Revelation chapter 11 of the devil. The angel of the bottomless pit brings lies like this and men believe it. And so they're, they're against, and you're going to meet Christians that just think we shouldn't have birthdays, we shouldn't have anything that has fun attached to it. Well, Jesus, I think he was a holy man, went to the feast that was in Cana of Galilee. The levity of a feast may tempt men to folly, but it doesn't require folly. Our liberty should be protected from any over-righteous killjoys. You can hold your place at John 2 and look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7 so that we can be reminded that there is such a thing as being righteous over much. There is too much righteousness that isn't pleasing to God. Being more conservative than God's Word is no better than being less conservative than God's Word. They're both wrong. The Bible tells us not to turn to the left hand nor to the right hand. We want the crown of the road. We want the middle of the road. We can't add to His Word. We can't take away from it. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 16. Be not righteous over much. You can be too righteous. You can make up man-made rules that are more strict than the Bible is, and it's too righteous. It's being righteous over much. Neither make thyself over wise. That's adding rules of wisdom to life that God hasn't added. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Why ruin your life? He wants us to enjoy life. Doesn't Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 7, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Verse 9, live joyfully with the wife. Now that kind of kills celibacy. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity. And it goes on and describes enjoying life. But Solomon knew. Solomon knew there were killjoys out there and the Roman Catholic Church has had their share. And at times in my life, I was one of them. When I was first converted, I wanted to be a Puritan like Jonathan Edwards. You know, and I'm not going to even tell you what some of the things I did. My little woman remembers. They were ridiculous because they were outside of God's Word. Oh, you'd have thought me something noble and holy about how I treated the Christian Sabbath. But thank you, Lord, for saving me from my folly. Look at Colossians chapter 2. You're still holding your place at John. And right now we want to kill some killjoys with the Word of God. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. Because Jesus and his disciples went to this thing. I get letters all, you know, people find our website, oh, they don't celebrate Christmas, Easter, Valentine's Day, and Halloween. I'm going to write them and see if they don't celebrate birthdays. And I love to write them back. Of course we celebrate birthdays. Why wouldn't we celebrate a birthday? What pope are we worshiping with a birthday? What sun? How are we worshiping the moon? Are the rabbits laying eggs involved? There's not a thing. Listen, mock them. Everybody wants to overreact. And we sound like we're overreacting. 
when you listen to what we believe here, but we're just old-fashioned Baptists that 150 years ago, ho-hum. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, that's elementary instruction of the law of Moses, if you be dead with Christ from that form of religion, why, as though living in that world or the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using. This is the rule of ascetics. Don't touch it. Don't taste it. Don't handle it because you're going to go to hell for doing it. That's a false doctrine. Paul is saying to the Colossians, if you are dead with Christ from this world and its religions, its earthly sensual religions, why would you listen to heresy like this, which is after the commandments and doctrines of men? That particular philosophy of killjoy is after the commandments and doctrines of men. Which things... You know, when you're strict like a monk or a nun, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship because of their self-denial. You know, when you see a man scourge himself on the back and crawl through a street on his knees with a cross, it's impressive. It's supposed to be impressive because it says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility. It's a show of it's a show of will worship, self-denial. It's a show of humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. The things that we should do in life are should satisfy the flesh because they're honorable. And by flesh, I don't mean the sin principle in us, but I mean our bodies because it's our bodies that are under consideration right here. The neglecting of the body. God gave us these bodies and taste buds and other sensual apparatus that should be enjoying the good things He's given us, like a wife. So Jesus and the uh, disciples went. Mirth feast. When they read the Word of God with understanding in Nehemiah chapter 8, they had a mirth feast. Nehemiah commanded them, Don't you weep today. Today is to glorify the Lord. You send portions for those that can't afford it. Today is to, to eat the fat and to drink the sweet. Let's have a celebration. And so they did. In Deuteronomy 14, you know that the worship of God, even in the Old Testament, allowed great feasting. What sore thy soul lusteth after? For, for lamb, for oxen, for wine, for strong drink. What sore thy soul lusteth after? Two times stated in one verse, Rejoice there with thy family before the Lord. David, the man after God's own heart, bought supper for the whole nation when he moved the Ark of the Covenant, and it involved a good piece of flesh, a loaf of bread, and a flagon of wine. The New Testament has its own feasts of charity to be enjoyed. Jude chapter 1 and verse 12. What do we, ha- what do we serve so much food for in this church? Part of it is to fulfill feasts of charity. The poor among us get to eat two meals a week, about, at our expense. And then we have some big ones from time to time. And we should have a big one soon, just to have a big one. Being more conservative than the Bible is Phariseeism, and Jesus hated it all. Over-righteous ascetics and killjoys condemn us for birthdays and holidays. They're the Jehovah's Witnesses and poor Christians that get led astray and become overreacting Pharisees. When I'm asked about birthdays, can you show me anybody having a birthday in the Bible other than Herod? Well, I go to Abraham to start with and show them. I said, it's not really a birthday, but it's like a birthday. And look at the celebration they had. Genesis chapter 21 and verse 8, when Isaac was weaned, Abraham threw a great feast for him. What's the difference? A wean day or a birthday? Do you want to pick on the terminology? Abraham threw a great feast. Abraham was the friend of God. But that was a big event. It was a coming of, coming of age event for Isaac. And Abraham had a great celebration for him. We read about Job, Job chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5, that every year on their day, his children had birthday celebrations. 
And Job knew that in a party atmosphere, there is the possibility of greater temptation, and so he would sanctify his children and offer sacrifices for them. Look at John chapter 10. We're going to get to this in a few years. And uh, here's another one that pops up. I don't believe in... Somebody will write me and say, I don't believe in the 4th of July. I don't believe in Thanksgiving. I don't believe in this. I don't believe in Memorial Day. Well, what did the Lord Jesus Christ do? John 10, verse 22, And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. That was a very nice porch of a very beautiful Herod-enhanced temple, the second temple in Jerusalem. Why are those verses in the Bible? What good do they do us? They answer the question, can we celebrate national holidays? What was this? This wasn't a feast of the Bible. This wasn't a feast of Moses. You can't find this in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. What was it? It's Hanukkah. Feast of Lights. What's it for? The Maccabees. Judas Maccabees and his brothers purging the temple from the Greek atrocities and profanations of it under Antiochus Epiphanes in about 165 B.C., still celebrated to this day. Jesus was there in Jerusalem, in the temple, in Solomon's porch, at this feast that was not a biblical feast. I'm giving you these to hopefully you can remember them and to hopefully keep our church on the straight and narrow that yes, we celebrate national holidays where God has blessed us by delivering us from foreign enemies. Back to John 2. America's Thanksgiving Day is about as scriptural as a national holiday could ever be. We want to be thankful for it. Verse 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. I don't think I need to teach you, though there will be people listening to this sermon that need to be taught. Wine was perfectly acceptable for Jesus Christ and is so for Christians. Jesus drank wine and drank enough wine that he was accused of being a wine-bibber. Luke chapter 7. This is not the strongest place to go to show that Christians can drink wine because Jesus turned the water to wine. The strongest place to go is Luke 7, verses 33 and 34, where it says that Jesus was very different from John the Baptist, and he drank wine, and the Pharisees could then call him a wine-bibber or a drunkard. Luke 7.33, it's a few pages over to the left in your Bibles. For John, this is Jesus speaking. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, he hath a devil. Because he didn't drink wine. Or eat bread. What did he, what did he eat? Locusts and wild honey. Verse 34, the son of man is come eating and drinking. Context is our master. And we are its servants. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. The Son of Man has come both eating and drinking. John ate and John drank, but John didn't eat bread or drink wine. Therefore, Jesus ate bread and drank wine because of the way it's structured in its parallelism between Jesus and John. And ye say of him, while they said of John, he hath a devil, they say of Jesus, behold, a gluttonous man for his bread eating and a wine-bibber for his wine drinking, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children, and wisdom is justified by you and me in this room today. Because Jesus wasn't a glutton and Jesus wasn't a wine-bibber. He ate and drank moderately with temperance. Why does it tell bishops not to be given to wine? Because they in a position of leadership should drink less than the rest of the membership. Why does it tell deacons not to be given to much wine? Now that's a different statement because their position has less responsibility than a bishop, but they shouldn't be you know, imbibing too much either. What does it say to church members? It doesn't say anything except... Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. 
So there's three levels taught in the New Testament. Drunkenness is forbidden all church members. Deacons are not to be given to much. Bishops aren't to be given to it. And when it says given to it, it doesn't mean you can't use it because it also says you can't be given to filthy lucre, but we use money all the time. We just aren't under its control, influence, vulnerable to it or addicted to it. Paul would tell Timothy, use a little wine for your stomach's sake. I have to say some of this. I hope everybody understands that uh, just to fill out the sense of these verses. I, I do want to say this. They'll, they'll tell me, but they drank new wine. Jesus made new wine. And uh, new wine doesn't get you drunk. Uh, what did the Jews on the day of Pentecost say to Peter and the other apostles that were speaking in tongues? These men are drunk with new wine. What is new wine? The current vintage. It's as alcoholic as any wine has ever been. Wine becomes alcoholic very fast, reaches its limit, kills the yeast, stops the fermentation process at 14%. When it sits around on your shelf for 25 years, it doesn't have a higher percentage of alcohol after 25 years. The yeast was already killed in it. New wine's just the current vintage. It's the cheap stuff on your menu that you order. Because the older stuff is more expensive because somebody had to put up the proper environment to keep those bottles for that time. There's other verses that I could show you in the Bible that new wine gets you drunk as fast as old wine because there's no difference in the alcohol content. Do you love the Word of God? Amen. It defends us at every turn on any subject. If we don't have an answer to a question, it's because we don't know the Bible well enough. Everything is answered in the Bible. Then they say, sweet wine. Sweet wine is what Jesus made, or sweet wine is what they drank in the Bible. The, the sweetness of grapes. Now, I haven't, I haven't found very much grape juice that is sweet naturally. It's bitter. Uh, good grapes are going to be bitter. That's what you're going to get a good dry wine from instead of sweet. But sweet wine, what does it mean? It means that you ordered white Zinfandel at dinner instead of Cabernet Sauvignon. Sweet versus dry. Sugary, a grape that had more sugar in it, or a grape that had less sugar in it, guess what their alcohol contents are? The same. Amen. The same. Isaiah 49 and verse 26 says, sweet wine will get you drunk. Well, then they say this, and I had to listen to this last night from a man that I, I somewhat respect, John MacArthur. Sherry had to hear him going off on how they diluted their wine, six or seven parts of water to one part of wine. I'm trying to figure out how anyone ever got drunk in the Bible. Right. Would they have the water tower of travelers rest behind their belly button? How in the world could you get drunk if you're drinking 2% wine? There's an answer in the Bible. Their wine wasn't diluted. That is a total waste of wine. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 22, God making fun of Jerusalem. Thy silver is become dross. Do you understand that? Dross are the impure metals that are melted and refined out of silver to leave you something appropriate, right, good, valuable, profitable. Pure silver. Thy silver is become dross. Thy wine mixed with water. Wine mixed with water is an absurd, ridiculous ruination of a thing in the Bible. And they want to tell us they diluted their wine? How'd they get drunk? Number two, deal with Isaiah 1 and verse 22, since there is no verse in the Bible that says anything about diluting wine except this verse that says it was never done because it's absolutely ridiculous and destructive of the substance. Just like if you were to, if you were to put dross back into silver, you ruin the silver. However, brethren, we will avoid offense wherever we should, as I taught you on Wednesday evening. That doesn't mean we care about Pharisees. And I've been through all that before, and I don't really want to do that right now. Um, you heard on Wednesday evening, we're going to live by Goss, G-O-S. We're going to do everything to the glory of God, avoiding offense to any man. 
Jew, Gentile, or the church of God, and we're going to try to save as many as we can to the knowledge of the truth that they'll love Jesus Christ right along with us and beside us. But in a place like ours, where there are a bunch of teetotaling Pharisees that are still following prohibition a hundred years too late, we go ahead and order a bottle of wine in a restaurant without any worry about it. Let me, let me remind you of why we take that position. There is no Bible basis for their superstition like there was for wine offered to pagan idols in the churches of Corinth. When the Bible says in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, or 9, or 10, about not drinking wine, it was wine that was offered in a drink offering to a pagan idol. That causes serious religious contradictions in the minds of some. But there is no such thing when it's just a beverage that doesn't have any religious overtones. Prohibition compares better to the foolish Jewish washings that Jesus made fun of. In Mark chapter 7 of adding to the word of God, Jesus showed no mercy to such hypocrites, but rebuked them in Matthew chapter 15 when he said, Every plant that my father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let the blind lead the blind and both fall into the ditch. When there isn't really a conscience toward God or the word of God involved, but their superstitious little old lady following, bandwagon approach, Billy Sunday worshiping, hatred of alcohol. We don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with those that do. Well, that contradicts Jesus because He did. And we don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with those that do. Touch not, taste not, handle not, all of which are to perish with the using. That is heresy. That is false doctrine. Why did Jesus heal on the Sabbath when He knew it would cause much offense and He could wait until Sunday to heal? Why did the apostles eat on a Sabbath in Matthew 12? Why didn't they prepare or wait till the next day? If you live in a place like Greenville with many teetotalers, you may order wine in a restaurant because they shouldn't be eating in such a wicked place. They're all, anyone that walks into a restaurant that serves wine, that's a teetotaler is a hypocrite and a liar. Because the Bible says you will not give drink to your neighbor. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 15. They understand that. It's just that they have to really get down to Chick-fil-A and McDonald's in order to find anything to eat where they don't serve wine. If you live near Amish, would you cancel your electricity and throw your toilets away? See, if you're in northeast Pencil- northwest Pennsylvania and you're driving the country roads, you come on these farmhouses and the toilets are out in the front yard because they don't know what to do with them, so they pull them out and throw them in the front yard. There's no electricity. So if we live near Amish, would you get rid of your electricity and your toilets? No, you wouldn't. If a Seventh-day Adventist moves in next door, are you going to stop cutting your grass on Saturday and sit at home and read the Bible? If a Vision Forum full quiver type is nearby, are you going to conceive annually? If you, but if you're, yet, yet, if you're pursuing a fundamentalist because he shows an interest in the truth, not an interest in their agenda, you should forego wine in his presence. And you shouldn't, and you shouldn't ask him if it's okay if you drink. Because you're going to force him to lie. Or something. So you don't ask him. Give it up. It's our pleasure to give it up for someone like that. And you shouldn't be foolish or rowdy because you're going to fulfill their superstition about wine. You know, the one drop just turns you over just messes you up and you're drunk beyond comprehension and thinking and that's their superstition because they don't understand it. So, enough of all of that was to say, when we read in verse 3, and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Mary expects that Jesus isn't going to have a conscience problem by producing wine. Mary drinks. Mary doesn't have a problem with drinking. Jesus drinks. Jesus doesn't have a problem with drinking. His disciples drink. His disciples don't have a problem with drinking. And so I had to chase that rabbit. 12 gauge, 3 inch magnum. Hopefully. The mother of Jesus said they have no wine. Verse 4, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, What have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Understand that Jesus always honored his earthly parents perfectly because Luke chapter 2 and verse 51 tells us he was subject unto them. 
Jews addressed women by their sex. We can show it from Matthew all the way through this Gospel of John. Jesus spoke to a variety of women and called them woman. It's not unusual. It's just not the most affectionate he could have used because he was putting up a little break on his mother who thinks that she could impose on him to do something for her. And he's teaching us a lesson against Catholicism that Jesus doesn't do what Mary wants him to do. I remember when I was six years old and a neighbor up north, there's many more Catholics than there are down here. The next door neighbor that I played with, his name was Glenn Kinsey. He was a Catholic. And I was six years old when I was introduced to some of these things. And I remember him trying to explain to me that it's much better to pray to Mary than to Jesus because Mary is much more sympathetic than God and Jesus are. And it wasn't until I was older that I read their theologies, and they say this, you know, all Mary has to do in heaven is unbutton her blouse. They're theologians. All Mary has to do in heaven is unbutton her blouse and show him the paps that he sucked, and he'll do anything for her. Do you believe that after me reading Luke eleven twenty-seven through 28 to you? Did Jesus run into one of those people? The woman who cried with a loud voice, blessed are the paps that gave you suck? Jesus said woman. He wasn't disrespectful to her by this common term. He reminded her that though she was his mother, she had no authority over him. He will help in the matter, but not as a mother with influence over him, as a woman. Mary Magdalene, when he met her, woman. Woman in adultery, John 8, woman. Woman of Samaria, woman. What he did for her was as a woman that believed on him, not as his mother. Jesus changed Mary to a woman and women to his mother when he said, these women that hear the word of God and obey it, they're my mother's. What I just told you about uh, Mary unbuttoning her blouse, that's in there. That's by their theologians. Right. That's not by, that's by the, theologians. That's right. Second part of verse 4. What have I to do with thee? What did Jesus have to do with her? Only ordinary child obedience and honor. At the age of 30, emancipated and serving his father in heaven, she had no claim on him. He will not forget his duty to take care of her. So thus, in chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, while Jesus is dying on the cross, he, ta- he makes provision for her to be taken care of by this writer, the Apostle John. And he knew the word mother. He said, woman, behold thy son. Then he said, behold thy mother. John, you're going to take care of her as your mother. So he doesn't forget those duties. However, in his official duties as king of Israel, he owed her nothing at all. Just like Solomon. Bathsheba came into Solomon. Solomon, I need your help. Mother, look at, hey, put a chair right here beside me. Mother, I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. Could I have added, could I have, I just lost her name. Abishag, could I have Abishag for Adonijah? Solomon said, what else does the boy want? His brother. Does he want the kingdom? Yep. I'm going to kill him for that, mother. Yep. Understand? Amen. If she'd have asked any motherly thing that was appropriate for the situation, he'd have done it for her. If she wanted to take a jet trip to Italy and see all the vineyards of Italy, he'd have paid for her to go. He had done anything for her, but when she tried to interfere in the affairs of state of that nation and put the nation at risk because Adonijah was a seditious traitor, he killed him and didn't keep his word to his mother. And all of it is righteous and perfectly wise. And it's why we read the Bible differently than we may have been raised to read it. What have I to do with thee? Relative to his ministry from God, she had no role or influence over him. Just like he told her and Joseph when he was 12 years old that he had father's business to be taken care of at certain times that they should remember. He's not disrespectful. Let's, let's just go ahead. But, you know, it's just beautiful that our omniscient God arranged this little exchange between them for the sake of Catholicism. Because for them to think that Jesus will do anything Mary wants, 
here are three level of three level statement that no, he won't do anything she wants on his timetable. Woman, what do I have to do with thee? And mine hour is not yet come. Let's come to that, the third and final phrase of verse four. This is the hardest phrase in John chapter two to interpret. Mine hour is not yet come. It can't refer to his hour of death because that doesn't have any bearing whatsoever on making wine here at this wedding. Some will say that uh, he was waiting for the wine to run completely out so that there couldn't be any so there couldn't be any confusion that there was some wine left over and he just diluted it out. If there's all these different explanations, what in, when we interpret the Bible, we are slaves to context. There are two things that help us understand what hour had not yet come. And the hour that had not yet come was for public display of miracles. You say, well, what about this one? It wasn't a public display of a miracle. No one knew that a miracle occurred at the wedding except a handful. Who? The servants. Part of the context. It wants to tell us. It's in verse 9, in parentheses, but the servants which drew the water knew. They're the only ones that knew what was taking place. Second, the next verse, Mary shows that he didn't say he couldn't perform a miracle right now because she immediately said, his mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. There are couched, couched. In verse 4, Jesus telling his mother, I'll take care of it. But mine hour is not yet come for the public display of miracles. Did, did it reach a place where anybody could walk up to Jesus and get a miracle performed? Are, yes. Yes, I'll just touch them and I'll be healed. They would bring the sick on beds and just put them in front of Jesus, heal them. The, the blind men, Bartimaeus and the rest would sit beside the road and yell out and get healed right there on the spot. But not this time. This was kept hidden. It was a mysterious Miracle in the sense that only a few knew that it was a miracle. Do you know how we know it's a miracle? John, by inspiration, wrote it down for us. Or we wouldn't know that it even occurred. If you want more on that, there's plenty. But I don't have time. It's in the outline. There's all sorts of different options that a person can take. But we interpret by context whenever we can. And by looking at the circumstances of this miracle, and by looking at Jesus, when asked to perform a miracle, mine hour is not yet come, he's referring to the public display, and it's, just, it's going to come up in this chapter. It's just a number of days later, he's going to be in the city streets at Jerusalem for Passover, healing everybody in public. Not here. Verse 5, his mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. I love those words. Are you with me today on whatever Jesus says we're going to do? I know, I know that's not the lesson here, but I just love the words. Let's do it, whatever he says to do. Verse six. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. A firkin is eight to ten gallons. Let's go with eight to be conservative. That means if there's two and a half firkins each, there's 20 gallons in each of these six water pots for a total of 160 gallons, for 120 gallons. 120 gallons of wine. What does a bottle of wine hold? It's called a, there's a word for it. It's called a fip. Who said that? Thank you. It's called a fifth because it's a fifth of a gallon. It's 25.4 ounces. So if you take 120 gallons times five, you've got 600 bottles of wine arriving. And somebody says, well, that's just way too much wine. Well, if there were three, if there were 3,000 guests, why wouldn't there be 3,000 guests? Did Jesus ever preach to crowds that had 5,000 out in the middle of this particular part of the country? 5,000 not counting women or children? So we had 20,000. Could they have 3,000 and they each get five ounces? Is five ounces after you've well drunk okay? Sure it is. Five ounces is a very small glass of wine. There's 15,000 total fluid ounces. If there's 3,000 guests, they had five ounces. If they could only five, find 300 guests like your wedding, then they each drank two bottles. <laughs> or, this is, this, is, this is believing Bible study. Or, or 
the governor of the feast sent a whole lot home. And somebody says, well, all you're doing is speculating to make Jesus innocent and pure. Thank you. I remember it's Leon coming to me one time after I had preached on the ark and he said, you know, Noah didn't have to take full-grown largest animals of each species on, did he? That's what an engineer will get you. <laughs> Brother, do you remember that? I mean, they didn't take, you didn't have to take a 10-ton elephant. You could take a 1-ton elephant. You didn't have to have an 800-pound lion. Take an 80-pound lion. If he's a boy, he's going to make more lions. Oh, Leon. I want a hotline. But that's what we just did here. There's all ways that we can look at this. How do, if they drank all that was left, all that was made into wine there, then it was a large number of guests. If they didn't, then it was left there, or it was given away or taken home, because everything was righteous. There was no one drunk. I don't, that word that's gonna, we're gonna come up on soon was not that they were drunk. It's that they had well drunk. That means they had had a good portion of wine already, enough to dull their tongue and palate, so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't know that they were drinking cheap junk, and they got the best stuff at the end. But let's go through these verses. There were set there six water pots. The Lord wants us to know this math. John wants us to know this math. The Holy Spirit inspired the math. So we go through the math. There's six water pots. The average capacity for each water pot is two and a half firkins. A firkin can be identified from history, and so we end up with 15,000 fluid ounces of wine, and we deal with it. Verse 7, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. That is, are we going to obey the Lord? And they filled them up to the brim. Two things. When the Lord tells us to do something that we can't see, how it's going to work out, are we going to do it anyway? The Lord tells women to submit. And, and when you read the verses in the Bible about a woman submitting to her husband, the way the Bible describes it, it would be totally natural to think, if I submit like that, he's going to walk all over me. So you trust the Word of God and do it. If we submit to... It's at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. If we submit to our federal government, our state government, our local governments, the way the Bible says, they're just going to run all over... Let's do it God's way and trust the outcome to Him. They did it God's way. He said, fill these with water. Then, second, they did it to the brim. Are we going to do it with zeal when the Lord tells us to do something? We are a crazy Baptist church. We have a little black book at your place called a Psalter. Do you know why we have that little Psalter? Because the Bible says, sing psalms. And we don't know how else to sing psalms, and God knows that. And so we do the best we can by singing psalms out of that little black book. There used to be a dry pastor baptistry back there. We sold it to someone else who wanted to stay dry. Because when we read the Bible, Philip and the eunuch both went down into the water and came up out of the water. Right. We wait for our children to grow up and grasp discipleship and know that there's such a thing as the Holy Spirit before we baptize them. When we separate from a thing, we avoid even touching it. If New Testament worship should be reverent with godly fear, we try to have some reverence in our services. We fill it up to the brim. We want to do everything with zeal that God's asked us to do. It is perilous times of the last days and compromise is being made part, is being, everything is being compromised in our religion. If we're going to do something for the Lord, it should be done exceeding magnifical. If we're going to do it for the Lord, it should be done with great zeal. Elisha was on his deathbed. Joash came to him and said, my father, don't you leave me. Don't you leave me. Syria is a great threat and an enemy to us. He says, come here, fix your bow and arrow. And the king, Joash, had to draw it back, and Elisha's in his sickbed. And he shoots an arrow out the window. God's going to give you victory over Syria. Now take those arrows and smack the ground for the victories you want. That's right. 
and he smacked it three times and the old man in his deathbed screamed at him, why did you only hit the ground three times? Because after three victories over them, they're going to take the ascendancy. What is all of that to tell you? It's a Bible illustration. It's the only kind I know. It's a Bible illustration of when the Lord says to do something, fill it to the brim. Can you, can you imagine how much fun you could have had with a handful of arrows in the presence of Elisha? Remember, he had twice the spirit of Elijah. You could have taken care of the Syrians' world without end. Verse 8, And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. Oh, precious. They had filled these water pots with water, And now the Lord Jesus Christ told them to draw it out and bear it unto the governor of the feast. The governor of the feast is also called the ruler here. He's the MC. He's the master of ceremonies. He would have been the most competent person there at detecting the quality of wine. I love the miracles of our Lord. Draw it out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. Let him taste the resupply that we have. And they bear it. Are you willing to follow through with a command from God that you might not grasp? Are you willing to be a fool for Jesus as in the perceived folly of baptism? Would to God all Christians could be as bold and obedient as these servants at the wedding. Verse 9, When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, notice, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. Please note, Who's in charge of the food at a wedding? The bridegroom. When the ruler of the feast, that's the governor, that's the MC, had tasted the water that was made wine. Catholics try to get in here and teach the doctrine of transubstantiation from this miracle. This is transubstantiation. But it doesn't support them. Transubstantiation is the doctrine of the Catholic Church that says the substance of the little cracker is transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ so that there is no element whatsoever left of the cracker while they put the cracker in their mouth. And while they have to dissolve it on their tongue and swallow it down and defecate it out later in the draft, as Jesus would say, they call that transubstantiation. This is truly transubstantiation because the substance of the water was transformed into wine because it says so. The governor called the bridegroom directly about the taste of the new wine. The Catholic host used in Mass has no new taste for there is no change at all. Any chemical analysis done before the priest pronounces hocus pocus is identical to any other chemical analysis damning them and their heresy. This abomination shows the bondage of false religion to deny even senses. They will sit in their church and and be told that there is nothing of the cracker, the host, left. It's been transubstantiated. The substance has been transformed. Then they pop it in. They know that it's just the old cracker. These ignorant souls believe what the pedophile in pajamas says, regardless of what their senses tell them. Bless God for thanksgiving and salvation from Roman Catholicism. It is so blinding and damning in its superstition that it imposes upon people. Why don't you tell me about the Roman Catholic nation on earth that is prosperous? Given its natural resources and its location and proximity to other first world countries. Try to find one. Ignorance. Slavery goes along with Catholicism because you have to have people so blind that they won't even think. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, that is real, transubstantiation, and knew not whence it was. So the governor of the feast, the MC, did not know where this new wine came from. He does not look to Jesus because the servants there didn't say anything. He looks to the bridegroom thinking that it's coming from the bridegroom's stores. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, verse 10, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, that doesn't say they were well drunk. 
or they were drunk. It says when they had well drunk. That's a verb. They had had beverages. They had drank some beverages. And so their palate was less acute in detecting the quality of the wine that they are being served. And ordinarily, you would start going down the, the list and the quality that you had available. And so the governor's explaining this rule, this general rule that makes perfectly good sense. Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, when their palate is not nearly as perceptive, then that which is worse, or wine of a lesser quality, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. So this is, this is a big wedding. This is a big wedding, and whatever kind of wine the bridegroom supplied, it was good wine. But when Jesus made wine, it crushed the good wine. Because it was very obvious to this MC that what we just had was special, and of everyone there who was the most qualified to understand the quality of wine, that man, the governor of the feast, the ruler of the feast, the experienced professional MC. He tasted it. Wow. Does that surprise us? Does that surprise us about the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ? Does the Bible, when it tells us He calmed a storm at sea, use the word great twice? How does it use the word great twice? There was a great storm, and then there was a great calm. Can you think of one five-letter P word that did the job? Peace. Do you believe He's the Son of God? Lord Jesus, we love Thee. Your power is infinite. We get frightened of the smallest little things that you can drive away with a word. Peace in a storm. Did God rejuvenate Abraham when he was a hundred years old and was reproductively dead? Did He father Isaac through Sarah? How many more years did she live? 37 more. What did he have to do after she died? Go on Christian Mingle and find Keturah. And what did he do with Keturah? Eight more sons. Six more sons. Praise the Lord. When he heals a lame man in the gate beautiful of the temple, what does the lame man do? Crawl around and say, I'm feeling strength? He's leaping and running around doing jumping jacks for three chapters in the Bible. In Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, he's a living demonstration of the way that the Lord Jesus does miracles. How big was the lad's lunch? Show me. Did it look like a little McDonald's bag? A couple fish fillet in there? Did they feed 5,000 men? Women and children? 20,000? How much did they get to eat? Till they were all filled. Show me the size of a basket. Twelve taken up of fragments left over. Why would he do a miracle with twelve baskets left over? Because he is the Son of God and he wants you to know that and believe it. Amen. I love his miracles. In John chapter 11, when he's told that one of his best friends on earth that he loved was sick, why did he hang around where he was? So that he would die. Why did he hang around so long that he had been dead for four days and stunk so that when his sisters said, yes, go ahead and obey the Lord and roll the stone away, Lord, he stinks. Why Why did Jesus wait so long? More glory to God. When your situation is bad and it gets worse, don't worry. There's someone there that's watching, knows every tears in his bottle. He's waiting for it to get worse so he can demonstrate to you in a greater way his power to save. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory and His disciples believed on Him. Do you believe on Him? I believe on Him. I want to believe more. He's already doing better things than Nathaniel, isn't He?
Remember he told Nathaniel, you're going to see heaven open and angels ascending and descending. And uh, if you're here just because I saw you under the fig tree, you're going to see greater things than this. Here's one of them right here. Thank you, Lord. Will you follow as John and others did in his service? Will you trust him that even when things are bad, when he tells us to do something, let's do it. When he tells us to fill it with water, let's fill it to the brim. When he tells us to serve it, let's serve it. Let's trust him every step of the way. He's a glorious Savior. This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of kings and Lord of lords, the Christ of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, and our Savior. Amen.